0: Good morning, church. Oh, look at that. It has been a while since I remembered my mic and to remember to turn it on. This is a good start so far. We are coming to the end of um, a series that we've actually been in for a couple of months. And we've covered a lot of ground talking about witnessing and talking about the gospel. And several months ago, if you remember, we started in the, the gospel of Luke And we saw that Jesus brought the gospel to the unexpected. Jesus shattered the idea that the gospel was for a specific person or a certain people group. But God so loved the world that he sent his son, and his son cared for, and his son healed, and his son ministered to, and his son gave life to those that we least expected, to the undeserving and the unqualified, the unworthy and we saw through the gospel that Jesus' grace extended to the unthinkable. And then we moved and we started walking through the book of Acts and we followed the church that Jesus himself commissioned to carry on his mission. And he told the church that we were to be his witness to everyone, everywhere. We are to share the good news of the gospel with everyone, and everyone includes our enemies. It includes those who are uninterested in hearing the gospel. It includes those that are skeptical. And today we're going to look at that. It includes those who are rich and those who are powerful and those who are influential and those who appear to have everything. That oftentimes we look at them and say, Why do they need the gospel? They have everything else. And the great British preacher Martin Lloyd Jones said this. He gave the best answer to that question. Why why do these people need the, the gospel? He had just given a sermon at Cambridge University, and one of the students came up to him and said, I listened to your sermon, and I can see how this sort of message appeals to farmers around here, but I fail to see how it's relevant to academics like myself and my colleagues. And the old preacher responded with this, the last time I checked, Cambridge students were made of the same dull clay as the farm workers in the field. What the preacher is saying is that the gospel is for everyone, no matter what you have, no matter what you're worth, no matter what you've accomplished or accumulated in life, every single person shares the need for a Savior. And you don't have to search too hard to see the pain and the suffering and the destruction in the lives of the rich and the famous, the powerful, and those at the top of their profession. It's all too often we open up the papers, and we see the pain and suffering in their lives. Every single generation, every single person in this room has a list of people in their own generation who they grew up watching, maybe even admiring. They appeared to have it all. But then we were introduced to the failures in their life, to the pain in their lives, to the suffering in their life, many of them going on in such depression that they took their own lives. When we start to look at these families, we start to look at these individuals, we realize that they were void of the peace and the joy and the hope that comes with knowing Jesus. Success, however you define it, does not replace your need for a Savior. And right now there are literally hundreds and thousands of successful or powerful or accomplished people that are dying to hear the good news of Jesus. Jesus. And if I'm really honest with you, if I'm just being honest, one of the reasons I love compassion ministries, and when I talk about compassion ministries, I'm talking about things like disaster relief. One of the reasons I love those ministries, it is so much easier for me to share the gospel with somebody who is hopeless, somebody who has lost everything, than it is with somebody who appears to have everything. And do you find yourself thinking that same thing? Do you find yourself thinking that some people need the gospel more than other people? Jeff Bezos needs the gospel just as much as that family that lost every single thing in that fire. Every single person needs the gospel. We cannot forget that. We should never forget that. That should weigh on our hearts that everyone needs Jesus, both the small and the great. And today we're going to look at how Paul shares the gospel the gospel of Jesus with those who appear to be self-sufficient, with those that are at the very very top or near the top of their political and powerful and professional pyramid. So go ahead and turn to or click on the book of Acts chapter 6. And what we will see when we look at this is Paul has just completed his third missionary trip. He's in Jerusalem doing what he does best. He's preaching Jesus. And he's preaching Jesus in the synagogues, and he's preaching Jesus that he is the Messiah that has been prophesied, that has been told about by the prophets. And so he is thrown into jail for causing disorder. However, this time the Jews are done with him. The Jews are furious with him. And while he's in jail, the Jews come together and they make a plot that we're just going to kill him. We are going to be done with this Paul guy now and forever. And getting wind of the the plot to kill him, the Roman guards, they go ahead and they have Paul move to Caesarea. And and Caesarea was the Roman administrative area of that province. It was the city, uh, like the capital, if you will, for that area. When Paul gets to Caesarea, he's in prison for two years. And the new governor, Festus, he arrives and he continues to hold Paul as a prisoner of Rome. Paul at this time has said, hey, I want to go before Caesar. And so they are holding him. He's not sure why. He's not sure of the charges, but he has to hold on to them. And Festus' friend and Jewish expert, King Agrippa, came to Caesarea to welcome Festus, to say, welcome to your new role. He's the new governor in the area. And Festus takes advantage of this opportunity, um, and in hopes of understanding the charges against Paul, he asks Festus asked King Agrippa, hey, would you sit in and hear his defense? Would you question him? Would you help me explain why he is in prison and help me fill out the letter that I need to send to Rome on why we are sending this man to them? And we read in Scripture, uh, Festus agrees to it. So on the next day, Agrippa, I'm sorry, Agrippa agrees to it. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And as we look across that room, this is the who's who of the Roman Empire, of that Roman providence. We see the leaders in that area. You have the governor, you have King Agrippa, you have the senior military leaders, and you have any of the men of prominent influence in that city. They have all gathered in this room. And you can almost see Paul, as he walks in, kind of look through the room and smile And he's doing that that mental roll call in his head. He's like, okay, I've got the king, and I've got the governor, and I've got this general, and I've got that general, and I've got this business owner. And he's realizing, not only do I have them, I've got all their servants in there. I've got everybody in this room. Everyone is here, great and small. So if that's you, what do you say at this time? You got one shot, and you can address the the political elite, the military leaders, the servants. You can address everybody. What do you say in this one time? What do you say in this moment? Paul was ready. Paul was ready for this. And as we look at the setting, we will see that this is the longest speech that Paul gives in the book of Acts. And this is a guide of how to share your faith with everyone, great and small. And as we begin to look at this chapter, Paul... Opens up with a very respectful invitation. In verse 1, it says So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. And he said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. See, King Agrippa, he was considered an authority on the Jewish religion by the Romans. He was an expert. He was the latest and the last of the Herod dynasty. His great-grandfather was King Herod, who feared the birth of Jesus Christ and had all the children murdered. His grand-uncle had John the Baptist murdered, and his father, King Agrippa I, not only executed James, one of Jesus' inner circle... But in Acts 12, it tells us that Agrippa, King Agrippa I, was struck down by an angel of the Lord and eaten by worms as punishment for allowing people to worship him as God. And it was right there in Caesarea, right where they were standing. So the Romans look at Agrippa as he has a history with the Jews. He understands the Jews. He is a leader in the Jews. And because Agrippa was a Herod, he was appointed uh, over the temple and thus had power to appoint the high priest and to administer the temple treasury. But as we look at Paul when he is talking to him, I love his last line that he says. Very often when we talk about giving our gospel or giving a gospel presentation, one of the things we really practice is how fast can I do this? Right? We call it the elevator gospel presentation. Or if you have three seconds or three minutes, how are you going to say this gospel in a time that they understand? I love Paul. Paul at the very end says, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Right? This is going to take some time. I'm going to lay this out for you and just sit and listen to me, please. This may take a while. Paul starts with when he was a youth. And if we continue reading in verse 4, it says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And it's in this part that Paul recognizes that is the hope of the resurrection of Jesus, which the Old Testament prophets waited for and watched for. It has come. Jesus has come. He is the one that so many have talked about. And it is the resurrection of Christ. It is God's power to raise the dead, was clearly manifested when the tomb was empty. But here's the thing God has always been the life giver. Whether it's by creating life out of nothing or giving children to a barren woman or having the the prophets themselves literally raise people from the dead god has been and is the giver of life and it's by believing in him that we can share in his resurrection and the hope of this eternal life this reality gives us a sure hope for eternity and therefore the love and peace that is in the hope in jesus should be reflected in our lives daily It's that hope that guides us. It's that hope that helps us go from bad time to worse time. It's that hope that helps give us life every single day. It's that certainty. And Paul said this in his uh, letter to the Corinthians. If it is Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And what you have to understand is when Paul says that, he's making the assumption that you're living out that hope that you are living, that Jesus is the only way. And to highlight the hope that is found in the resurrection of Paul, Paul shares his testimony. He shares his story. And when sharing the gospel, either with the small or the great, we can't be afraid to share our story. We have to talk about our story and who we are. Continuing in verse 9, listen to Paul's testimony. He says, I myself was convicted, or excuse me, convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, and after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Right? He's saying I, I voted to put this person to death. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And it's in this connection that I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the gentiles to whom i am sending you now as we read paul's testimony it's pretty obvious that we don't have the same testimony as paul none of us in here like held the garments of somebody as they stoned and killed the first martyr stephen none of us at least i don't think any of us have ever hunted down christians and tried to throw them in jail or tried to kill them simply because they were followers of jesus and that's what Paul did. But then Paul met Jesus, and he became one of the greatest evangelists, one of the greatest church planners, one of the greatest missionaries, not only in the first century, but the world has ever seen. His letters were fully inspired by God and became part of the canonized Scripture. This is a testimony that none of you have. Right? This is a very, very unique testimony. However, you too have a unique testimony one that God has given to you to help you be a witness to who he is. To help be a witness to his glory. He's given you a testimony for someone. And some of you are thinking, well, I have a pretty simple testimony. Right? I, I grew up in an upper middle class family. I went to great schools. I got great jobs. I had a great family. I advanced to the top of my profession. But when I found Jesus, I realized I was missing something. I realized I was still lost in my sin. I realized I was still headed for death. And it wasn't until I found Jesus that I found life. I wonder who needs to hear that testimony. Right, when we think of the people that are rich and the people that are powerful and the people of in- influence. What was their life like? What is their life like? So what, what is your testimony? Is your testimony about achieving but not finding joy until you found Jesus? Maybe your testimony is about having, needing control, but not finding peace until you surrendered to Jesus. Maybe your testimony is actually about trying every single thing out there, chasing the latest fads and saying, oh, I need this and I need this, but never finding hope until you found out and heard and believed in the resurrection of Jesus. What is your testimony? What is a story that you can share with others? Is it one of those? Is it a a mix of those? Is it a whole bunch of different things about what your life was before Jesus and what your life is after Jesus? How has God and the hope of the resurrection changed your life? I once heard a pastor say that if nothing has changed in your life since you came to know Jesus, something is strange, right? If nothing has changed, something is strange. God did not give you life so you could keep living as if you were dead. God did not send his son to the cross so that you could remain dead in your sins, so that you could just keep doing whatever you wanted, so there would be no change, there would be no life in your life. Jesus gave his life to give you life. You are a new creation, Scripture tells us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And if you skip ahead a few verses, it says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right, It is our testimony that allows us to be ambassadors for Christ as we walk in this newness of life, as we walk in this hope of resurrection, and people see us. They should see a change of before and after Christ, and it gives us the opportunity to share our story. When God gave us life, he, we left death behind, and we started walking in a new living hope of the resurrection. We were given a story. We were given a testimony of God's power to share with those that we have the opportunity to be a witness to. We were given a story to share with everybody everywhere. No matter how rich or powerful or influential somebody may be, they don't have life until they know Jesus. Right? You were given a story to tell people about Jesus. Who needs to hear your story? Who needs to hear your story? Who's... God giving you that story to reach out to. And so we see that Paul began his testimony with his story. His conversion from life to death. And then as we go on, I want you to really listen to what Paul shares here. He shares it in many of his letters when he's sharing about the gospel when he's giving his testimony. We're going to back up a little bit to the middle of verse 16. And Paul says this, I have appeared to you for this purpose, and this is Jesus talking to Paul to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I have appeared to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Listen here. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And in this short passage, Paul goes on to describe what it looks like to walk in this newness of life. Right When sharing the gospel, sometimes we just stop at the conversion and say, hey, I found Jesus, that's it. And we try to move on. But when we need to share the blessings of the gospel, share how that has changed our life and what it means Right? Paul not only shares his testimony in the hope found in the resurrection of Jesus, but he goes on and simply describes what those blessings look like when we're living in the new hope found in the gospel. Right? The first thing he talks about is our eyes are open. We are set free from spiritual confusion. We don't need to get caught up in the latest Oprah fad only to lose hope when it doesn't work. We don't need to be chasing the next hopeless thing every week. What is the newest fad? What is the newest thing? Do I pour wax in my right ear or in my left ear? What is it? We don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. We have Jesus. We have his word, and we have life and truth. And the Holy Spirit, when it's living in us, gives us understanding. The next blessing that he talks about is that we are fueled by the power of God, no longer fueled by Satan. When Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater work than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. We could do greater works, not because we're something special, it's because we are powered by the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by God. And it comes back to the very first passage that we covered when we were looking at Acts. In Acts 1.8 it says, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The blessing of the gospel is we are fueled by God. Third thing he talks about is that we are free from guilt. And scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation when we put our faith in Christ we don't live in fear, we don't live in regret, we regret, we don't live in shame. But when we are in Jesus, that is gone. And the last thing he talks about is our salvation is assured. Here's the thing, it's assured by God, not by us. That means it's guaranteed. Right? We we can try to guarantee everything we want, but really we don't have the power or the authority to guarantee anything in life. But when we are in Jesus, it is guaranteed by God. And first Peter it says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our salvation is kept in heaven, is guarded, is protected by God himself in heaven awaiting for us. It is guaranteed. Putting our faith in Christ isn't the end of the story. It's really just the beginning of a new life. A new mission. A new way to be a witness for Jesus. Just last week I was with a, talking with a friend who was on the backside of a very, very, very difficult marriage situation. And out of the blue he got a call from one of his friends and, and he learned that his friend was going through a similar situation that he had struggled with. And his friend was having a really, really tough time. And what was interesting is they had no idea about each other's situations until this phone call. And my friend said, hey, guess what? You don't know this, but. And he went on to share his story with him and share his testimony and now what was happening in his marriage. And he said this, he said, things started to change when I started reading this book and I turned back to God. It cleared up who I am and who God is. It is God that started to work in my life and my marriage, and by the grace of God, I was able to address things heard head on, and God walked me and my wife through them. It was his power and his grace that was getting us through this. I realized that even though I messed up, I could still be a godly man. I made a mistake, but God could still use me, and God forgave me. And in my time of need for fellowship and support, I reached out to godly men, and and some of these men I hadn't talked to in years, And apparently they called or they texted me simply because they said I was on their mind. I was on their heart. They were just thinking to me and wanted me to reach out. And my friend said, why do you think I randomly called you today for the first time in three years? Because God put you on my heart. And I have a list of guys. I have a whole bunch of guys that you need to talk to that can support you, that you need to reach out to. They helped me when I needed help, and they would love to help you. And then he said, do you read the Bible? The guy said, no. And he said, do you want me to send you the Bible that I'm reading right now and we can read it together? The gospel changed my friend's life. And now he is excited to share the blessings of the gospel, uh, of living a gospel-centered life with those who seem hopeless, with those who are out of hope. But listen to this. His friend was his boss at one time. They had worked together and this was his boss and his friend had risen to the top of his profession. He was even running the entire division for an overseas uh, in another country. But here he was hopeless and without Jesus. And my friend was sharing with him not only the hope that Jesus provides, but the blessings that come with living a gospel-centered life. So just write this down. We always panic and forget to say What to say when we are standing before somebody we think is powerful or influential. We're not sure what to do. (laughs) I was actually doing a job. And I said, man, if I get the opportunity to meet uh, David Platt, I'm going to ask him how I can pray for him. And wouldn't you know, like the third day, nobody else is in the room. He walks in. We're standing face to face. And he says, hey, man, how are you doing? And I shake his hand. And I just stared at him. (laughs) And he stared at me. And then he said, uh, I'm going to go get ready for my sermon. And he like walked away. And I was like, "Ah, oh, I had it. I had the one opportunity in my life. And then he forgot something. He came out the door and I said, ah, gotcha. How can I pray for you? And that was the, the, the one time that I just lost my mind. So here we go. Don't lose your mind. My kids aren't in here because they would laugh at me if they said the one time I lost my mind. But that was one time. And so here, write this down. We always panic. We get nervous. We get these weird feelings in us. So the first thing we do is we share our story. And the second thing we do is we share the blessing of the gospel. And then finally, and this is really, really important because sometimes we leave this step out. We need to share the need for repentance. Listen to what Paul says in verse 19. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Paul shares with King Agrippa the need for everyone's repentance. That's why, that's why I'm in jail. I told these people not only to repent, but act like it, right? Start having deeds that act that show that you are turning to God because repentance is when you put your life in Jesus' hand and you trust that the gospel is true, right? You trust that God is, Jesus is God and you trust that the work that he did on the cross saves you and you trust it so much that you stop running away from God and start running towards God. Right, we call this, you start following Jesus. This is the part of the gospel that we just leave out way too often. We are very quick to say, oh, you need to admit you're a sinner and you need to believe in God. And we say, check those two boxes and then we move on. But there's a part of repentance where our life changes. There's a part of repentance where we follow Jesus. And we need to tell people, do not forget, you need to repent and follow God. Jesus re- preached it all the time. Repent and believe. We are to turn from ourselves and follow Jesus. What did Jesus say when asked, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Follow me. Now anytime Jesus said, follow me. Following Jesus is what true repentance looks like. It reminds me of Dave Ramsey. If you guys are familiar with Dave Ramsey, he's that financial coach. And people always say to him like, hey, I was following your plan, I'm following your plan, but I just can't seem to get out of debt. And so Dave will start talking with them and start hearing what's going on. And as he's talking with them, he learns that, well, you didn't sm- start with your smallest debt. And they have an excuse. Well, no, no, no. I wanted to do the one with the highest interest. He said, that's not my plan. And then they'll say um, they started saving for retirement before they paid off their debt. And he said, um, that's not my plan. Right. And then they're using credit cards, but they have a good excuse. They want the miles and those are helpful. And Dave Ramsey will just say, you're not following my plan. Right? You know of my plan, but you're not doing my plan. And he goes, tell them, stop fooling yourselves by thinking you're doing my plan if you're still doing your plan, if you're still doing your own thing. And that is how we treat God when we don't repent. We say, I know who you are, God, and I know that you died for my sins, and that's all great, and that's all part of your plan. But then we keep doing what we want, and we don't follow Jesus. We don't follow God. That's not God's plan. Right? God's plan is that you follow Jesus, that you follow me. And when we repent, we really believe that God's way is better than our way, and we follow him by, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we follow God. We don't do it perfectly, that's what the cross is for. And Jesus went to the cross, that's what it's for. We will not do it perfectly. And the hope of the resurrection leads to life transformation which begins with repentance. That is the message that we need to be sharing with everybody, everywhere. But here's the kicker. Here's the interesting part when we get to the end of this chapter. The the most part of sharing with anybody, I like to call it the pre-evangelism, it's our prayer. It is our seeking God's heart. And we, we tend to be biased on who we share the gospel with. We look at people and decide, oh, I think this person needs the gospel more than this person, or I'm more comfortable with this person, or I'm more comfortable with this person. Here's the truth. God's heart is that none should perish. No one small, no one great, and it's through prayer we seek God's heart and his power. And in the last part of this passage, we see three things that we should be praying for to share the gospel with everyone everywhere. By looking at this the end of this chapter, we see three prayers to help us share the gospel with those who are small and those who are great in our community. And I'm just going to read through these really quick. The first thing that we should do, we find this in verse 22, is that we should pray for God's help. And Paul said this, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to pray for God's help when we are to witness. We need to pray for God's help. The second thing that we are to do is we are to pray for boldness to speak the truth. In verse 26, Paul says this, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection and all the things that have happened, the explosion of the church. And here he is standing before a man, a king, who has the authority to do some crazy things to him, make his life really miserable, and Paul just Stands before him and speaks the truth boldly and says, I know you know this. You've seen these things, they've happened under your nose. And Paul just speaks boldly. And then the last thing that we see is that we should pray for people to repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 27 King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also uh, all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The Paul was praying for these people. And we should be praying for these people. Paul's heart was for these people. These people had Paul thrown in jail. These people brought Paul out like he was some caged animal, like in a zoo. And they were looking to hear his story and just were amazed at this this sideshow. And Paul said, I want you all to be like me. I've been praying that you guys would have faith in Jesus, that Jesus would grab your hearts. And he prayed for them. Church. God has empowered you to share your story and to share the gospel with everyone everywhere, and it begins with prayer. Who are you praying for today that God would give you the opportunity to share your story and His glory with? Who are you praying for today? And if no name comes to your mind right now. Let me ask you this question. Who should you be praying for? I promise you, I I promise you, you have friends, acquaintances, people you see on a regular basis that don't know Jesus. You have people in your life that you look at them and say, oh, they got it all together. They don't need Jesus. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for that God would just give you a heart to love them, that God would give you courage to speak to them? Who are you praying for that they would turn from their ways and follow Jesus? And as we end here with prayer, this will head into our series that we're going to be starting next week as we go through Luke and we look at Jesus' prayers. And then we'll look at the prayers of the church following that. But who are you praying for? Who are you praying for today? I'm going to close us in prayer and as the band comes up and as they sing, my prayer for you right now is that your heart would be lost in the people that you need to share the gospel with. Dear Heavenly Father, we just... Thank you for your words. We thank you for your son. Lord, we thank you for the life that you laid down so that we could have life, that we could have eternal life and know you, Lord. We thank you for the stories in our life, and as we look back and we think of the hard times and the difficult times, we think of the times that we were lost and hopeless without you. We are grateful to know that you can use those times to meet somebody where they are and bring them to a saving knowledge of you. Lord, we would pray that our eyes would be opened and that we would see where the Spirit is working and that we would have the courage to share the good news of Jesus with whoever you put in our place. Wherever we are and whoever we meet, Lord, we pray we would have the courage to share the good news of Jesus and the blessings of the gospel with anyone, anywhere. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your Son's precious and holy and merciful name of Jesus that we ask all of these things. Amen.